You guys, this is my first time to ever preach from an iPad. I'm a little nervous about that. Um, thank you very much for the kind introduction. Thank you for your hospitality. Um, I, I was promised that there would be cold weather and snow when I came here, and I must say that you have outdone yourselves. Um, you can calm down a little bit with the, the cold weather and the snow. I also want to apologize. I, I was last minute. I couldn't figure out how to get a picture of my daughter Eden up here for you to, to look at while I preached. Um, but hopefully, you remember it from Wednesday. Please pray with me. Father, as much as I desire food when I'm hungry, drink when I'm thirsty, and sleep when I'm tired, I desire that you would speak to us today for the building up of your people and for the glory of your Son. I ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the world's favorite pastimes seems to be watching a celebrity come unraveled in a spectacular way. Culturally, we might say that we are voyeurs watching in privacy in our living rooms the most embarrassing and tragic moments of other people's lives. This happens throughout popular culture, whether it's sports, music, movies, or even people who are just famous for being famous. And it also happens to Christian leaders. Why is it that people who should know better or people who have an embarrassment of riches and access to any resources that they could possibly need to find guidance or to get help fall short, come unraveled before our very eyes. Before we go any farther, let me ask you a question. Could it be that you have much more in common with them, whoever they are, than it might seem at first glance. When you made the decision to come here, did it feel to any of you like it was just the slightest bit isolating? Did anyone feel a sense of others without you wanting it to happen or giving them permission, starting to put you up on a pedestal? Has it ever felt like the standard was raised, that people were watching you for signs of hypocrisy? waiting for you to fail, just a little bit more closely than others. If you can identify with any of that, you might be able to have a bit more compassion for the famous person who makes a series of really bad decisions. You might be able to see a child made in the image of God who is desperate for connection and is simply connecting with the wrong things because we're hardwired for connection. 
The value of connection with God and one another is affirmed throughout the canon of Scripture, the early creeds of the church, and all over the place. And it shouldn't surprise us because the doctrine of the Trinity shows that Christians profess that God and God's self is community, is a perfect fellowship of self-giving love. A variety of secular contexts are even recognizing the extent to which we are hardwired for connection. Years ago, a study showed that lab rats, when given the choice between a container that just has water in it and another one that has water laced with heroin, the rats would become addicted to the water laced with heroin and they would obsess over that to the point of doing nothing else until they died. This study was often used to say that the key to addiction is about chemical dependency. But a more recent study has put rats in a much more interesting and engaging environment. It's also had water that's just water and water that's laced with heroin. In this study where there's a variety of things for the rats to do with each other and to engage with their environment to connect, only a few, most rats just ignored the heroin. And only a few became very interested in it and none of them died. Now this is way beyond my own area of expertise, uh, so I don't want to make too fine of a point here. But the study provides evidence that our environment may be a more important factor in addiction than chemical dependency. The article also points out how there, there are all kinds of drugs that people receive when they have really painful surgery that are very similar to the kind of illegal drugs we think of, and that those people after being on those drugs for weeks don't go find a street dealer when they get released from the hospital. Why is that? What's the difference? Here's how the article I read expressed the implications. It said, Professor Peter Cohen argues that human beings have a deep need to bond and form connections. It's how we get our satisfaction. If we can't connect with each other, we will connect with anything we can find. The whir of a roulette wheel or the prick of a syringe. He says we should stop talking about addiction altogether and instead call it bonding. A heroin addict has bonded with heroin because she couldn't bond as fully with anything else. So the opposite of addiction, says Cohen, is not sobriety, it's human connection. If we are hardwired for connection, for fellowship with God and others, why is it? that so few people seem to experience an abundance of intimate relationships of deep connection and intimacy. Deep connection, an abiding, uncompromising commitment to be in relationship with another. That seems to be the exception and not the rule in human experience. And is it not the case that Christians struggle with this just as much if not more so than the rest of the world. Is fellowship really essential for human flourishing? Is it even realistic to expect Christians to develop deep relationships with one another that mirror the kind of fellowship that exists within the life of the Trinity? The reading from 1 John this morning speaks into these very questions. First John begins with testimony about Jesus who was from the beginning and who has been heard, seen, and touched. 
the writer repeatedly emphasizing the empirical experience of Jesus, the incarnate word of the Father, proclaims what has been seen, what has been heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And lest there be any doubt about whether this fellowship is a good thing, the writer notes that our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so first John begins with an invitation into fellowship. Fellowship with the believing community that has experienced Jesus with the full array of sensory experience. And an invitation through fellowship with this community into fellowship with none other than the living God himself. So what is this fellowship? Is it polite and mostly superficial conversation? Hey, how you doing? Is it merely tolerating the presence of another person in our midst? Oh, him again. I hate when people say that when I walk into a room. No. It's fellowship with the family of faith as it unites around the word of life and seeks together to be remolded, reshaped, renewed into the image of Jesus Christ, the word of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to proclaim to you what I have seen and heard so that we may be in deeper fellowship with each other, so that we may have fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. I am preaching to make our joy complete. Is it possible that we have settled for a kind of pseudo-joy, for syrupy, sugary happiness, the kind that boosts your spirit for a second or two, like a candy bar or Skittles, a sugar rush from eating too much candy but doesn't last and even leaves you more depleted when it's over. What if today, what if God wants to bring to this place a new dimension of joy? What if God wants to bring right here at Kingswood University and from here into Sussex and beyond a complete joy, a joy that is birthed through fellowship with each other and with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just as the writer of 1 John coaxed and pleaded with his community to openness to the fullness of God's promises for them, will you allow yourself to consider the possibility that God has more for you? If our joy being made complete is connected in any way with fellowship, we need to know more about what it means to be in fellowship with each other. The community of 1 John seems to have addressed this and been wrestling with this in ways that, that are relevant to us today. In fact, in the second part of chapter one, the writer is addressing competing understandings of the gospel, contending that certain misunderstandings are damaging not just because they're theoretically wrong, but because they undermine and impact in a destructive way the fellowship of the community itself. 
The first parts of verses six, eight, and 10 seem to represent statements by one part of the community that the writer is saying are incorrect or inadequate. They represent distortions that aren't just bad ideas or beliefs, but that undermine fellowship itself. Verse six, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Verse eight, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. What is at stake in verse 10 is a claim that there is a deep problem with the human condition. It does not discriminate. It impacts everyone. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is a problem not only because of isolated acts of bad behavior. It's a problem because we love the wrong things or we are no longer even capable of love. Instead, we live in fear or anxiety. We live to control our environment. And this is part of the explanation for why fellowship does not come naturally to us. We were created for connection. We were created for fellowship. But our ability to meet that deep need was damaged by the fall. Think particularly about how our ability to connect with God was impacted. People's lives come unraveled before our very eyes because they lose the ability to connect with people, with God. They become isolated. And eventually it becomes easier for them to connect with something that is life-destroying than to connect with something that is life-giving, but connect with something they will. Verses six and eight may hit a bit closer to home for most of us here today. What do we do if we're convinced that we are sinners saved only by the grace of God? How do we think about sin in the lives of those who have experienced the amazing grace of God, being forgiven, made new, as sheer unmerited gratuity? I think, by the way, that's something that we could sit in longer waking up each day and saying, I am a beloved child of God because I am, not because of what I do today. Nothing I do can make God love me more. Nothing I do can make God love me less. Biblical scholars have wrestled with whether verses eight through 10 show that the writer rejects the possibility of complete freedom from sin. This of course has particular implications for the Wesleyan understanding of entire sanctification, which I've gotten to talk to some of you about this week, or of the promise of being freed to love God and others completely, to be in fellowship with God and others in a way that excludes sin. When 1 John says that claiming to be without sin and claiming we have not sinned are deceptive lies to ourselves and make God out to be a liar. Is he saying that any sins, claims of sinlessness are unjustified? Is he saying it's impossible that we shouldn't expect to be entirely cleansed from sin and freed completely to love? I don't think so. One of the reasons I don't think so is if you read all of 1 John, there are other claims that are still claims to sinless perfection, like chapter three, verse six. 
No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues in sin has either seen him or known him. Chapter five, verse 18 makes a similar claim. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, that is Jesus, and the evil one cannot harm them. So part of what 1 John chapter one is addressing is the way in which sin damages fellowship. Christians need not, indeed should not, sin. But experience shows us that they do. And when we sin, it damages our ability to connect, to be in fellowship with ourselves and with our creator. I suspect that the most natural reaction that a person has after a clear awareness of committing sin is to hide. That's exactly what happened after the fall. And at least for me, it's often my instinct. A part of denial. If I just hide, then it didn't really happen. Things were going so well and now they're not because of my action or my inaction. But I want them to still be going well, so what if I just pretend? What if I just act like everything is okay? Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? Has anybody ever gone to your band group and you felt like garbage because of something that you had done during the past week? And the last thing that you want to do is to tell someone about it. Now, I'm sure that you would never do this, but somewhere, someone has probably conjured up a reason that they couldn't go to the group in order to avoid having to tell the truth, to just cling to the illusion that everything is fine a little bit longer. Or maybe you've gone to your group and you've simply held back. Maybe you haven't said everything that you needed to say. Can you see how these kinds of decisions can damage fellowship and lead to a less than complete joy? But even when people are hiding, they yearn for connection. Nobody wants to play, no child wants to play hide and go seek and not be found. Eventually, the question isn't whether we will seek connection. The question is what we will connect with. Look at John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 again. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So what's the solution? Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. When we've stumbled, when we've gone to dark places, we really only have two choices. We can stay in the darkness or we can come into the light. When you're in the dark, it's hard to find your way out. Sometimes people who appear to be surrounded by the light are still walking in darkness. There are people every week who come to church who are stuck in the darkness, who are being consumed by their sins. You may be there right now. 
even in this place. But there's always hope. The light beckons. You can come back to the light. First John chapter one verse nine has been one of the sweetest verses when I have heard it on the lips of brothers and sisters in Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Purify, not just forgive. Both are offered to us, but it's, it's not without cost. You have to tell the truth. It's an inescapable step on the road to forgiveness. That's why when I've been in a band meeting, we have always pronounced these words over one another after the person makes their confession and not before. And yet the words are there right now. Grace precedes us even as we grope about for the courage to confess our sins. Even when I don't want to go to the group, I can hear the echo from times it's been pronounced in the past. If, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God's grace is what makes it even possible for us to tell the truth. And by God's grace, as we learn to tell each other the truth, the Holy Spirit enables us to love and care for one another in new ways, in deeper ways. We learn to hold another person's pain without seeking to simply fix them or make them better. We learn to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and to grieve with those who are grieving. And the thing is, in community, as complicated as it is, sometimes that happens at the same time. I feel like I've said a lot, maybe too much. That certainly wouldn't be the first time. Um, a lot of what I've said might seem complex, confusing, or abstract. I wanna make sure that we don't lose sight of how this is possible. Or better yet, I wanna make sure that we don't lose sight of who makes this possible. We're able to find forgiveness and complete acceptance with God because of Jesus. Because of what he has already done for you when you did not deserve it. You still don't, by the way. And that's good news. Right? It would be very bad news if I only got what I deserved. Jesus condescended to be seen, to be heard, to be touched, and ultimately touched violently, beaten and killed. So that we could come into the most intimate fellowship with God that is humanly possible. 
This is one of the reasons the incarnation matters. Our fellowship is not mediated, it's not virtual, it's not on Twitter. That's not how Christ comes to us. He comes to us with skin on. And Jesus not only restores our relationship with God, he restores our relationship with each other. So many people are lost, so many people even maybe feel more comfortable with a personal relationship with Jesus, but not really with a personal relationship with other people. Maybe some of us are more comfortable with kind of me and Jesus and, and we're really tight, um, but I don't really need to have that degree of intimacy with anybody else. Fellowship with God and others, it's, it's hard. On this side of the fall, I'm not sure you would even say it's natural anymore. In fact, without Jesus, it will never be what it is supposed to be. That's why any attempt to pursue connection or fellowship outside of Christ is destined to lead you further into the darkness, no matter how benign it seems at first glance. Our attempts to build relationships and care for one another will be pathetic and futile if they are attempted in our own strength. But in Christ, in Christ, church starts to look really different. Jesus wants to make us a family. He wants us to experience a depth of intimacy and being known that we may not yet even be able to dream about. My guess is that in this place, there are some people who have a taste of that, who have a glimpse. Maybe some of you who came here with a pain, some kind of wound that you hadn't ever really been able to share with other people. And I believe that there are some of you who have gotten a glimpse of what it's like to bring that into connection with others and into the light of Christ. Some of you know what it's like to feel the kind of healing that comes, the kind of wholeness that returns from connecting in the deep places of our lives. And praise God for that. I'm also confident that there are some of you here who still have that wound, who still have some, something that just aches within you that you haven't shared with anyone else, that you're carrying around with you a burden. You don't have to be alone in that. More than any other place I know of, Kingswood is trying to create every opportunity for you to connect to connect when it's easy and it's fun. I don't know why there aren't more snowmen out here right now. <laughs> and to connect when it's hard, when it feels impossible, because sometimes it does feel impossible. If you're in that place, I pray that Jesus would open you up to be able to risk allowing others in to your brokenness. It might not even be brokenness that you caused in yourself. It may be something that has been done to you 
not something that you have done. But you still need connection. You still need fellowship. And it's offered to you. None of this is a threat. None of this is a guilt trip. If I've done my job, it is a merciful, love-drenched promise. I hope it sounds enticing, inviting, even exciting. Because Jesus wants fellowship with us because he desires fellowship with us. Right? He wants us to experience fellowship so that he can be in fellowship with us. Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of Life, wants to bring us, every single part of us, into the complete and perfect fellowship that he already experiences with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus wants this not because he needs you in order to be complete, but because that's what love does. Love delights in giving itself to another. So I wanna claim the words of 1 John chapter 2, verses one and two for you this morning. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. Not a judge, an advocate. Think about that. Think about the darkest place that you have ever been. In that place, you have an advocate not one who is condemning you. There is one who is condemning you in that place, but it's not Jesus. He's your advocate. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. When you catch this vision, you don't need a burden, you don't need a guilt trip to do evangelism. Because when you're brought into the love of God, what does love do? It delights in giving itself to another. Brothers and sisters, no matter what, there is always hope, always. And that hope is always freely offered in Christ. And by the amazing, unquenchable grace of God, we have been given a role to play. It's crazy that God has given us a role to play in this. We get to pour into each other. We get to be poured into by each other in ways that are life-giving and actual, tangible, concrete expressions, not just of our own strength, but of God's grace. God uses us to give grace to each other. So if we refuse to be in fellowship, we refuse to give grace to a brother or sister in Christ who is desperate for it. If you refuse to be in fellowship, you refuse to receive the grace of God and the fullness of the ways that God wants to give it to you. We get to begin to live now, not in some future unknown time, the kind of life that already exists now and for eternity 
within God's own life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit now. The kingdom of God is here. It is already, though, not yet. You are loved so deeply. In fact, you are loved perfectly by the triune God. You are loved because you are, not because you do. There is not one single thing, not one single thing that you could do that would increase the way that God loves you in this moment, even if you are hiding. This love brings a ray of light into even the darkest places. God's love enables us. It is what makes it possible for us to stop hiding. This love enables people who are being transformed and being healed by God's grace to wrap their arms around each other, to care for each other, and as love loves to do, to give themselves to a world that is desperate for good news, desperate for light, and needs to hear the sweet song of God's love for them. We're made for connection. Thanks be to God. In this place, we are able to connect with God and one another. May God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enable us to connect in healing and holy ways with each other and connect with those who feel utterly alone and completely forsaken. For the glory of God, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. What I wanna do to sort of transition is, uh, I, I'd like to, to just create space. Um, I don't know really what's gonna happen in this space. I've, I wrestled for a while with sort of scripting this in some way and, and there, none of it felt, it all felt like Kevin. Uh, and um, so what I wanna do is, is just create an opportunity. Um, for you to bring yourself to God in whatever way, and maybe what you need to do is to bring yourself to, to somebody else. You, maybe you need to be in prayer with people and not, not just in prayer by yourself, I don't know. Um, but I wanna create space for you to wrestle now with God about something. Is there something in you that's keeping you from experiencing the fullness of fellowship that God wants for you? Is there something that's keeping you, that's holding you back? I wanna create space for you just to bring that to God. Um, if, if it's best, if you feel that that's, you know, you wanna come to the altar and pray by yourself, if you wanna pray with someone else, um, my guess is in this place there are a few people, if any, who would say no if you asked if they would pray for you. So I wanna create space for you to pray um, with each other. I think the, the band is gonna be playing some music as we do this, so I'm gonna open us with a prayer and then I'm just gonna invite you to come forward or to gather together if you feel led uh, and to, to just pray. I'm gonna open us with a prayer uh, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to the band to create a beautiful space for us to just talk to God about our desire and our need for fellowship and to ask for freedom uh, to be more deeply in fellowship with God and with each other. Please pray with me.
Father God, I have felt in an almost overwhelming way this morning how deeply you care about each person in this room. The truth is, I don't know what's going on really in anyone here's life, but you know exactly where each person here is at. And so I wanna ask that you would work in this space. This community is already healthy, it's already strong, but I think you wanna knit together a new and deeper dimension to what is already here. And so I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit in an unmistakable way in our midst right now. That you would give us the courage, you would give us what we need to bring to you whatever it is that we need to bring. We might need to give you something and let you take it. We might need to ask for power or help and be able to receive. If we need to come forward, help us to come forward to the altar. If we need to talk to a brother or sister in Christ, enable us to do so. Work in the way that you want to work now. Transform us, heal us. Because Jesus, I know this is what you want to do.